Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Today's episode is sponsored by Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth. The core message of this podcast series is that the monumental task of removing gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere is too big, is too complex, and needs to happen too quickly for any one technology or stakeholder to solve alone. That's why I call carbon removal or CDR a collective action problem. Everybody, and I mean everybody, has a unique and important role to play in scaling it up from government to entrepreneurs to civil society. What I learned in my previous career improving access to healthcare in some of the most underserved parts of the world is that sometimes depending on the organic growth of a suite of technologies, is just not sufficiently fast enough to solve big, important global imperatives, like expanding access to vaccines or HIV medicines in low-income countries, or massively scaling up CDR by 2050. That's why people like Dialis, who has written some excellent thought pieces on this, advocate for intentionally shaping the CDR market we want, instead of accepting the CDR market as it is. Roadmaps are one powerful organizing tool to accomplish this. If they're done well, they can accelerate the scale-up of public goods like CDR by mapping out the gaps in an ecosystem, prioritizing what needs to get done, and assigning responsibility to the right stakeholder groups. It creates clarity and forward motion and enables cross-sector collaboration. It charts a path for what it's going to take to build an entirely new sector roughly the size of the global concrete industry. That's why I'm excited to speak to today's guest who co-developed a roadmap that spells out step-by-step what it's going to take to scale up geochemical carbon removal approaches to gigaton scale by mid-century. This roadmap is tremendously valuable in its own right, but it's also useful as a blueprint for how to plan, organize, and mobilize stakeholders around scaling up other CDR pathways. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Dr. Kara Mayazano, Geochemical Lead at RMI CDR Initiative. RMI delivers market-led, business-driven, practical solutions to accelerate the transition to clean energy. It's an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit, a collection of architects, business leaders, engineers, scientists, and other experts committed to rapidly decarbonizing the entire energy system. This past July, RMI launched a new initiative focused on carbon dioxide removal, or CDR, through the incorporation of the Climate Map, which was founded in late 2020 as an independent nonprofit to answer the question of what needs to happen in order to achieve billions of tons per year of carbon removal by mid-century. The CDR initiative team is continuing their research and analytical work to develop roadmaps for CDR technologies, but will also go beyond analysis and will get involved in implementation in new ways, leveraging RMI's platform and track record of building markets and shaping policy. 
Dr. Kara Maezano began her science career working in cosmology labs at UC Santa Barbara and Stanford University, building instrumentation for cosmic microwave background studies. She holds a PhD in physics from UC Davis, where she helped construct large underground particle detectors and studied interactions between cosmic rays and carbon atoms. As a postdoc, Kara focuses on environmental exposure assessments and the impacts of air pollution and climate change in general on public health. The realities of health impacts on climate change led her to switch her focus towards carbon removal as a solution. And she joined the Climate Map as a research scientist in the spring of 2021. At RMI, she now leads efforts on technology assessments for geochemical CDR and how they integrate into both the broader CDR system and the wider industrial landscape. Kara, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. The roadmap that I'm excited to talk about today, the type of work that the climate map initially kicked off and is now part of RMI's CDR initiative, is primarily focused on geochemical carbon dioxide removal or geochemical negative emissions technologies. But before we get into the roadmap itself, for the benefit of our listeners, what's considered to be and what's not considered to be geochemical negative emissions technology? What are we specifically talking about there? Yeah. So um, geochemical nets or negative emissions technologies or geochemical CDR, just normally how I actually talk about it, is basically it. It's a term that we use to describe any deliberate process or technology which takes CO2 gas and then turns it into a solid. And by solid, I mean carbonate mineral or dissolved ocean bicarbonate. Geochemical processes are natural processes. So basically, that's what happens when you have CO2 and water and certain types of rock, for example, like volcanic rock, alkaline rock. It happens all the time on Earth and has since ever, but it's slow. So this is essentially what the Earth does as part of its slow carbon cycle. And if we stopped emitting CO2 today, these are the processes that nature would eventually use to reduce or stabilize the amount of CO2 in the air. That happens far too slowly on human timescales or on biological timescales. So that's where the technology aspect comes in. Because there are things we can do to make this natural process happen faster. We've more or less grouped geochemical CDR into three main categories. One is carbon mineralization, which includes things like crushing rocks to increase their surface area and let them naturally just react with, with CO2 faster than they would have normally, or injecting CO2 dissolved in water underground and letting it circulate through the rock so that it mineralizes underground. Another category is enhanced weathering, or sometimes called enhanced rock weathering, which also uses crushed rock, but in this case, the rock is spread on soils or along coastlines. And then it interacts with the water and the CO2 on its own. Um, and then finally, um, the third category is ocean alkalinity enhancement. And this, this one's a bit different, but you can also spread crushed rock in the ocean. It's one example. Or you can kind of force it by pumping seawater and then separating into an acid and a base. And then using that base, which is alkaline, of course, and mixing it back with seawater where it will force carbonate precipitation. So... Um, geochemical CDR can mean lots of things, but fundamentally just describes the way that we make CO2 turn into rock faster than it normally would. That's really helpful. What stands out to me is this is partly the reason why the kind of nature-based versus engineered-based dichotomy is not really that helpful, right? I mean, there's elements of this that leverage natural processes, and there's elements that are accelerated by technology. 
And it seems like by having, by talking maybe more about the short and long carbon cycle, that that might actually be a better way to talk about CDR pathways as opposed to the nature-based versus engineered dichotomy. Would, would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. What was the motivation and objective of developing this roadmap? And the roadmap we're referring to is essentially setting out what are the things that need to happen in order to scale up geochemical negative emissions technologies or geochemical CDR and to get to gigaton scale by 2050, right? What was the motivation objective of, of developing this roadmap and why are exercises like this so important? Yeah, so um, the motivation for the roadmap was really to lay out a plan. So maybe not the perfect plan, but a plan that maps out what we need to do now to ultimately get to gigaton scale CDR. So our objectives for the project in general were to look across the entire ecosystem of geochemical CDR and identify gaps, so gaps between what's going on now and what needs to happen in the future, and then try to figure out ways to address those gaps. And because those gaps need to be addressed soon, if we want this to work, we believe that some kind of coordination is necessary to push things forward quickly and efficiently. And roadmaps are essentially tools that can do that. They, they lay out a path from the current status to where we want to eventually be. And they do so strategically by listing in a more detailed way the actions and activities that need to be undertaken, when they need to be undertaken, and by whom. So yeah, we, we think this is important because we, we will need some kind of plan if we're going to build a CDR industry at a meaningful scale quickly. But also if we want to make sure to build it in a way that helps people and it doesn't cause any environmental harm or do any real damage. The overall thought behind this was we don't really have time to let things happen organically. Um, the CDR industry is not going to build itself. So we should be strategic about what needs to happen now and who should be working on what. And that way we're confident that we can quickly and efficiently take next steps. So we know that plans change and constantly need to be updated. But by publishing a roadmap, we can let people know what we see are important obstacles and how to address them. And then people can respond. And then we can have a discussion about the right priorities and on specifically what different groups should be doing. I'll mention that we're not the first group to put out roadmaps for CDR. And we're not even the first group to put out a roadmap on geochemical CDR. There was a, a great roadmap that was put out at the end of last year by the Innovation Earth Forum. They cover most of the same mineralization pathways. And also the Energy Futures Initiative put out a report in 2020 called Rock Solid. Um, we did another one and we think it's additive because we wanted to look at the gaps through a different lens. We, so rather than look pathway by pathway, we look at broader components of a functioning industry that we think are relevant for geochemical CDR to succeed. So like demand, for example, or social license or infrastructure. And then also we try to break the priorities down into specific activities for specific groups of people. I really like that element of the roadmap. It, it does try to map out where different stakeholders can get involved. And I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But, you know, one of the things that seems critical to me in doing something like a, you know, a roadmap like this is making sure that, you know, we have something that's mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive, right? Like you really want to get a good handle on on all of the all of the pieces of the puzzle. And this sounds like it was a really big undertaking with a lot of people involved. What steps did you take 
to approach this mapping effort in a thoughtful, strategic way? Yeah, so our model of the climate map, which we're carrying over to RMI, is to work closely with experts in the field. And then we first review the current state of the science and the technology for a given set of approaches. And then we also talk to others in the field outside of academia, like startups, for example, or people in industry. In this case, we started with carbon mineralization or geochemical-based CDR. And then it began initially with a comprehensive view of the field, mostly from a research perspective. Uh, for geochemical CDR, this makes sense because a lot of approaches as a deliberate drawdown strategy because carbon mineralization has existed forever, but as a deliberate drawdown strategy, a lot of these approaches are still new and have been mostly been worked on from an academic perspective. We were really lucky to be able to collaborate closely with Phil Renforth and his team at Harriet Watt University, who have expertise in multiple geochemical approaches to CDR. And then we brought in Paul Reginato and his colleagues at MIT and UC San Diego because they had expertise on biotech as it relates specifically to carbon mineralization. And then we did a review and the review was actually published first. It's part one of this roadmap. Um, and the road mapping work was built on top of both that review and again, like I said, some other you know, work we did to look beyond the science so that we could get a broader picture. You did a pretty comprehensive gap analysis and needs assessment centered around a number of categories like demand, supply chain, technological readiness, social license, human capital, and infrastructure. Can you tell us a little bit about each of these categories that you've assessed through this roadmap and why broadly they're important? Yeah. Um, so we wanted to look across the entire landscape of geochemical CDR and get a systems view. For us, that meant categorizing the various elements of a successful industry, and we landed on those six categories. So again, that's demand, technical readiness, social license, supply chains, human capital, and infrastructure. And for each of those elements, we tried to take a hard look at what would be needed if this was, if geochemical CDR is to succeed and become successful as a climate strategy. So in demand, for example, like what kind of demand will be needed? And right now, right now we might feel like we're starting to have a lot of demand given, you know, what Frontier's doing and other groups who are looking to purchase durable removals, right? Like we've got more demand than supply, but really a gigaton scale, demand is going to need to come not just from the voluntary carbon market, but also the compliance market, which is much bigger, and also government procurement and potentially demand for physical products. One advantage of geochemical approaches is that you can end up with useful materials like calcium or magnesium carbonate or silica. So if demand for those things increased, it might increase demand for geochemical CDR. But it's likely that we're going to need a lot of demand from a lot of places, and that might not even be enough, right? Like you might need, um, you know, mandates for certain industries like cement or steel or mining to incorporate mineralization into their processes. So, um, so that's kind of how we we're thinking about demand. But demand's just one thing; it's not the only criteria for getting us to get it on scale. So we also need other elements. None of this works if the technology readiness isn't there. So that's something that people need to focus on. We all need to focus on. None of that will go forward if there's no public license to operate 
or if there are not enough people to physically do the work required, or if we can't access enough of the necessary materials. There's a lot of materials, but we need to have access to them. And then finally, like we need a lot of clean energy, extra clean energy to crush all these materials up. So yeah, we, we looked at all of these categories because like you said, like without all of the pieces, they're, they're still just ideas. They're not full-blown solutions. Yeah, and I really, I really like how you looked at all of these different elements and how they interact with one another. I think that's extremely important. And, and could you say more about maybe some of the most critical building blocks that are needed to get us to megaton scale and then eventually to gigaton scale? Yeah, yeah. We we looked at these two things separately because we we saw them, we saw the the roadblocks slightly differently for each one. So for megaton scale, the main building block we see we need to get to megaton scale are a robust MRV system. So it's monitoring or sorry, measurement, reporting, and verification. Um, also includes monitoring. So we need that, but we also need a sufficient number of pilots and demo projects to prove all this out, make sure that we understand the environmental implication. All of that needs to be financed. But yeah, there's still research needed across the board to verify safety. Like there are some things that we need to do to get to megaton scale. For gigaton scale, the building blocks, they're much different, I think, and they're much more significant. So you're talking about an order of magnitude of, of, of a thousand plus. So for example, the amount of mining is quite large. We're going to need a lot of mining. The amount of energy required to crush everything is also going to be large. But at a gigaton scale, you're going to need a lot more demand, as I, as I just mentioned. We're definitely going to need public buy-in. And uh, we're going to need a lot more people working on this. Maybe one thing that's not a, a, a block to getting the scale is there is definitely more than enough alkaline rock on the planet to get to gigaton scale CDR. So we're not worried about physical limits here, but making sure that rock is, is accessible, that it can be accessed without severely impacting communities or ecosystems, that, that's less straightforward. But the yeah. physical volume of rock that's actually needed to undertake these processes, whether they are, you know, rocks that are ground up and placed on soils or there's some ocean element to how this is done, but the alkaline rock that you're talking about, there's enough volume of that. And it's really just about how do we effectively, responsibly, cost-effectively get it to where it needs to go? Is that right? Yeah, that's actually a, a good way to think about it. Like everything we need is there. <laughs> it just like physically, everything we need physically is there. And the chemical reactions happen on their own. We don't need to force those. But it, it's all of these other pieces that, you know, relating to humans, all of the other, all of the other, you know, societal pieces, like all of those need to be, be worked out. I really like how this was centered around, you know, the end product we're talking about is, you know, carbon dioxide turned into, turned into rock. Tell me a little bit more about like, the energy requirements, they must vary pretty significantly by specific pathway. I guess with certain activities, there's a lot of energy required in grinding up rock, for example. But um, is, that, uh, is that a really big concern at the megaton scale or is that probably a larger concern at the gigaton scale? 
I would say that's more of a concern at the gigaton scale. And the reason why I say that is because uh, there are a lot of ways we can get to megaton scale without having to build up big systems. So um, I'll use mine tailing as a, an example. So mines have a lot of waste. So they mine the rock and they have, they extract the things that they're looking for. But the things they're looking for are very small in quantity to the amount of rock that they're extracting. And all of that rock, if it's alkaline rock, can be mineralized. It's already crushed. It's already ground to the, the you know, the, the scale that we need, um, the size we need. So, so we could get to megaton scale just by mineralizing mine tailing that are already being extracted and processed already. Not that that's super straightforward because you have to introduce another step into the, the mining process. So I'm not saying it's easy, but a lot of the, the energy, you know, a lot of that's the energy that you would need to crush the rock has already been done. Of course, you know, there are other waste materials besides mine tailings that can be used. Slag from, from the steel industry can also be mineralized. And then, you know, in not all cases do we need to crush the rock. For example, if you want to inject CO2 or water, CO2 dissolved in water underground and have it mineralized underground, you don't need to extract really any rock. Um, but in that case, that's usually coupled with DAG or direct air capture. And you do need energy for direct air capture. That's really helpful. I, I really liked how the roadmap itself differentiated between what were the key priorities at Megaton CL and then, you know, to get into later in, in the 2040s, what's needed at gigaton scale. But then you went even a step further and you mapped out what priority initiatives to address these system gaps were needed broken down by stakeholder, right? Academia, startups, government, and so on. But big picture, you know, what would you summarize as kind of some of the key overarching roles for a few of these stakeholders? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for this question, because we actually had this built out much more in earlier versions of the roadmap. I'm really, I'm glad you, you asked this. Yeah, so everybody... Everybody has a different part to play. Every stakeholder will have a different role. And we like, obviously people should be doing what they're more or less good at for academics. Uh, I'll just run down the, the list. We have, we have academics. We, we need academics to continue to advance and expand knowledge in you know, their, their usual self-correcting, unbiased way. We also need them to communicate that knowledge to the rest of the world. Entrepreneurs and startups are important because they can act quickly and take advantage of emerging opportunities in ways that other groups can't. Um, that goes for venture capital as well. The, the flag I'll raise there is that, you know, we expect academics to share their work and their data, but we, we don't expect this of startups for obvious reasons. But there may be a risk to leaving the pilot testing to startups, um, which is more or less what we're seeing now. But back to the stakeholders, investors. So investors are a stakeholder and we, they can assess opportunities and risk across different time horizon. They can provide capital. We're going to need investors to provide capital for large projects beyond pilot and demonstration scales. 
existing industries are quite important here. Um, like I said, uh, you know, I mentioned the mining industry, but you know, many big industries already have the equipment and the infrastructure and the workforce in place already to carry out some of these activities. And like I said, they already have ideal feedstock. I've personally come to the conclusion that as far as geochemical CDR is concerned, we're not going to get very far without some of these larger industries getting involved. You know, and they, they also have a large incentive to do this because mineralization could actually mitigate some of their environmental liabilities. So we have nonprofits uh, and philanthropists. We think nonprofits can, you know, they, they can act independently and they can play a role in awareness and research and advocacy. Um, we also need them to act as watchdogs. That's very important. And then philanthropists should be supporting the nonprofits, right? And they can fund things that other people don't fund. Perhaps the, the biggest stakeholder is, is that we list out is the government. And governments, we think governments have the biggest role of all. So they need to establish laws and regulations and incentives and standards. They can also drive the market through procurement decisions. There's a long list for the government, but maybe the last thing I'll mention is that governments can coordinate and develop strategies, you know, similar to the way they're doing with the DAC hubs. They could do that in concert with efforts like the DAC hubs because in-situ mineralization is complementary to DAC as a storage solution. So it would be really great to see governments lead here effectively, like pushing on, you know, it's great that they're pushing on DAC, I support that, and but also mineralization then those things can be pushed forward together. Yeah. It, you know, it, the more people I speak to, it, it just becomes more and more clear that government has an absolutely critical role to play. And, and especially in getting, you know, a lot of the, you know, regulations and permitting and, and, uh, and some of these programs like DAC hubs off the ground could really benefit from greater coordination within government around different CDR pathways plugging into an initiative like direct air capture hubs. And to the extent that that could potentially be more, more tech neutral, I think that could be really positive for other pathways in CDR. That's a really great, a really great rundown of, of what kind of the potential overarching roles should be kind of looking like for different actors in the space. And the role that governments play coordinating is going to be really important. We'll also say there's an opportunity for philanthropies to play a role around coordinating NGOs. I think NGOs have a tendency to stay within their own silos. And as philanthropies that fund multiple NGOs can kind of really enhance some of the learning that can happen between NGOs and their own, uh, and their own work in this space. So I think philanthropy is going to be really, really important as we go forward beyond just their direct support to NGOs, but this kind of indirect opportunity to create a, an atmosphere for shared learnings and communities of practice across NGOs that are going to be really important to accelerate progress here. How does, how does all of this really great work around the CDR roadmap, how does that feature into the work that RMI is taking on? What can you tell us about this relatively new program and, and what you intend to work on going forward with RMI? Yeah, so um, yeah, we've got a new program and we've, we've got big plans. So th our goals are basically to work towards the effective and responsible deployment of CDR technologies, so not just geochemical CDR, but all CDR approaches. And really, you know, the ultimate goal is a measurable reduction in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. So that's ultimately what matters. And the way we plan to achieve those goals is first through research, basically doing our homework and making sure we understand what we're doing and that we're thoughtful 
and how to best move forward. And then through action. So the, the CDR initiative will continue to do the core work we did as a climate map. So unbiased, rigorous science-based analysis and perspectives. So this could take the form of roadmaps like, like this one, but we, we also intend to publish other material. So for example, design concepts for initiatives or programs that could be useful for CDR in general. In terms of action, we are focusing on supporting three main areas, breakthrough R&D, MRV, and implementation support for actual projects. And maybe I'll elaborate a bit on the R&D side, because ultimately that's the foundation of a robust CDR system. We see many areas where fundamental R&D and breakthrough innovations are still needed. Uh, we want to support researchers who are already working on CDR. We want to help bridge the information gap between academic research and the outside world, because we know there's, there is a communication gap there. And we really want to attract researchers from outside of CDR to help and address some of these big, important, fundamental questions that need answering. That's really great. How do you hope this roadmap will be used going forward? And how can people get in touch with you to learn more about this and some of your other current efforts you just talked about at RMI? Yeah, and so our hope is really that this roadmap will be used by a wide range of audiences, both to situate themselves and their work within the broader project of building up their geochemical CDR field, but also to enable people to collaborate and form partnerships with people in other sectors. So for example, we hope it's useful for researchers or for entrepreneurs who are looking to build out new technologies and innovation. We hope it gives CDR companies a way to have conversations with their investors about how their technologies and the companies they're developing will have a place in this, you know, essentially new industry. We hope it gives policymakers and philanthropists a view on some of the most important gaps in the field and on where they should be directing resources. And I guess finally, we really hope it enables cross-sector collaboration um, with companies, governments, and civil society all teaming up to co-create standards and regulations, talent pipelines, so on. Um, one of the clear conclusions for our work is that we aren't, we aren't going to do this without some coordination. The problem's too big and it needs to be done far too quickly. So coordination is really needed. Um, in terms of follow-up work, um, you know, we, we've got a significant amount of follow-up work plan in geochemical CDR, but also in other areas of CDR. We're currently producing roadmaps like this one or similar to this one uh, for DAC and also for biogenic CDR. Um, we'd also like to make the information more digestible for people outside of academic audiences because we think it's important that information isn't siloed. Um, and then we plan to engage with government and philanthropy, CDR buyers, companies, to try to help catalyze and mobilize more action on priorities that we've identified. And how can people get in touch with you to learn more about this and your current efforts at RMI? Yeah, um, so via email. I, I don't know if you put email in the in the show notes. Um, also LinkedIn. I'm the only Karamizano in the world. So it's pretty easy to find me. Wonderful. What's great about efforts like this and why I wanted to make sure we profiled it is is that I think you just said it perfectly. The problem is way too large and we need progress 
far too quickly to kind of let this all unfold in some organic way, but we need to have system organizers help map out what needs to happen, what the priorities are, where different stakeholders are particularly well-placed to play a big role, and that will help move things along faster and also with a greater sense of intentionality. It helps us, it helps us perceive challenges before they're too big to solve. They allow us to really unpack potential downside risks and make sure that we're ready to mitigate them. So efforts like this, I think, are really, really important for advancing the CDR field more broadly. And I just came away reading the uh, roadmap that you all produced, feeling like it does, does a great service to this massive challenge we have of scaling up carbon removal because of just how comprehensive this, this piece of work particularly was. And I hope our listeners can spend some time to take a look at it. Kara, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful speaking with you. And I hope we can do this again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great. And thanks again to today's sponsor, Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end -end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth.